Today is Saturday, March 6, 2021. On this day in 1998, Matthew Beck shot four of his co-workers at the Connecticut Lottery Corporation headquarters before turning the gun on himself. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a Spotify original from Parcast. Today we're covering a tragic shooting at the Connecticut Lottery headquarters. Let's go back to the small suburb of Newington, Connecticut on the morning of March 6, 1998. Thirty-five-year-old Matthew Beck was clearly in a bad mood when he got into the office that day. He didn't say a word as he hung up his tan leather coat and sat down at his desk. When his co-workers offered him a friendly hello, he didn't acknowledge them. He looked lost in his own dark world. His demeanor wasn't exactly out of the ordinary. Just eight days earlier, Beck had returned to work after taking four months of medical leave due to job-related stress. The time off didn't seem to have done him much good. All his colleagues could do was give Beck a wide berth as he settled into his accounting duties for the day. He pecked at his keyboard for about 30 minutes before abruptly standing up from his chair. He trudged slowly toward the administration suite, walking with measured purpose. With each step, he felt cold steel against his skin. Inside the office, Beck found Michael Logan, the information systems director. He stood stock still and stared at Logan for just a moment, his face unreadable. Then, with cold, dispassionate efficiency, Beck drew his knife and stabbed Logan to death. Afterward, he pulled out a handgun and turned to Linda Milnarchik, the company's chief financial officer. She was too shocked and terrified to speak. Beck's face remained expressionless, but his tone was mocking as he told her, bye-bye, before shooting three times. He didn't wait to make sure Milnarchik was dead. He simply turned and exited the suite, leaving at least one other colleague alive and screaming. Marion Terziak, a state lottery accountant, told the Hartford Current that she heard three pops coming from outside the room. At first, she thought something heavy had fallen to the ground. She looked around briefly and saw a few of her co-workers doing the same. Then she heard the yelling. Security guards rushed through the halls, corralling workers and leading them to the exits. Lottery President Otho Brown joined them to help his employees get out of the building. It wasn't an orderly evacuation. It was chaos. People ran down the stairs and out the doors without any idea what was going on. Screams filled the air as people pushed their way to safety. They weren't sure where they were supposed to go, but everyone knew they had to get as far away as possible. While they ran out to the parking lot, Beck continued his mission. He watched dozens of employees pass him by without raising his gun. None of them concerned him. He only cared about his next target. Eventually, he found the vice president, Frederick Rubelman III, in one of the halls, helping to direct people outside. Beck killed Rubelman just as quickly as all the others. Adrenaline coursed through his veins, but his expression didn't change. It was like he'd dissociated from the situation. 
he picked his way past his remaining colleagues and headed out to the parking lot. He spotted some of the other workers hiding behind trees or cars. None of them mattered to him. All he cared about was company president, Otho Brown. After a quick scan of the premises, Beck saw Brown stumbling away into an empty overflow lot. He followed, watching as Brown tripped and fell on the gravel. Some of the other employees screamed for Beck to stop. It was like he didn't even hear them. 54-year-old Otho Brown scrambled to his feet as Beck approached. He begged for his life. Beck wasn't moved. He told Brown to shut up. Then he aimed his gun and fired. As Brown bled out onto the pavement, the police screeched into the lot and ordered Beck to drop his weapon. His face remained expressionless, even as the authorities trained their weapons on him. He looked around slowly, as if assessing the situation. Then he brought the pistol to his head and pulled the trigger. Five people were dead in a matter of minutes. Coming up, we'll cover the lead-up to Beck's shooting and its aftermath. You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what the doctors can't, or so they say. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the podcast series Cults. Be sure to check out our four-part special on Miracle Healers airing right now. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies, but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly groups in history, tune in to Cults every Tuesday. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple, to Charles Manson and the Manson family, to Keith Raniere and Nexium, you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. On March 6, 1998, Matthew Beck killed four of his supervisors at the Connecticut Lottery Corporation headquarters. When police arrived at the scene, Beck died by suicide. The shooting was a shock to his co-workers, though everyone acknowledged Beck had been having problems at work for over a year. 18 months before the attack, he was reassigned from his accounting position and started testing software. He complained that he should have been paid two extra dollars per hour for taking on the new role, but he was still making an accountant's salary. Beck took his grievance all the way to the top, eventually demanding back pay, which led to protracted negotiation with the Lottery Corporation. During the talks, Beck took several months off to deal with the stress. Finally, the company compromised and transferred him back to his original accounting position in 1998. When Beck returned to the office, his colleagues noticed something was different. He was no longer interested in being friendly. He lived entirely within himself, seemingly consumed by a quiet rage. He stopped talking to his co-workers. He clearly still believed that he'd been taken advantage of and hadn't been compensated fairly. The feelings apparently ate at him for weeks leading up to the shooting. 
After his rampage, the state of Connecticut was left reeling. Beck was a former security guard and was licensed to carry a concealed handgun. Yet even his father admitted that he knew his son was troubled. No one could deny that the world would have been a safer place if Beck hadn't been allowed to handle guns so easily. Following the shooting, politicians and activists sought to make sure violence like Beck's never happened again. In 1999, Connecticut passed what was called a Red Flag Law in direct response to Beck's killing spree. The legislation allowed local authorities or family members to request that the state temporarily confiscate guns from a person who was deemed to be a danger to themselves or others. Connecticut was the first to enact such a law, but 18 other states have followed with similar provisions since then. Though some politicians have faced pushback from pro-gun groups, the legislation has been shown to be effective. In 2016, a study published in the journal Law and Contemporary Problems found that roughly one in 10 gun removals prevented a suicide in Connecticut. It has likely saved dozens of lives since 1998. Subsequent examinations have reinforced these findings. In 2018, researchers examined the impact of red flag legislation in Indiana. By analyzing CDC data, they determined that the law led to a drop of 7.5% in suicides by firearm in the state. The data proved that even small measures to combat gun violence can have a recognizable impact on people's lives. Notably, this legislation focused on only temporarily restricting an individual's access to guns in order to prevent drastic decisions made in the heat of the moment. It's impossible to know whether these kinds of rules would have prevented Matthew Beck from attacking his co-workers all those years ago. But thanks to quick action by Connecticut and other states, similar tragedies may be prevented in the future. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from ParCast. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Alex Benedon, and fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 